Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Mackenzie Feldman, Founder and Project Director of Rewild Your Campus. Mackenzie is a dynamic young entrepreneur who set up her impactful organization as a student at UC Berkeley. Rewild Your Campus, which started out as Herbicide Free Campus in 2018, works with students and university authorities to free campus landscapes from toxic pesticides. This grassroots venture has now expanded to involve young people from across the U.S. who take their responsibility towards society and the environment seriously. Rewild Your Campus has become a powerful platform that enables individuals to take impactful and informed collective action. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mackenzie. I am very excited for our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so the story of Rewild Your Campus is so interesting. And um, could you share a little bit more about how it came to be what it is today? Yeah. So when I was a student at UC Berkeley, I was on the beach volleyball team and when I was a junior in 2017, one day I showed up for practice and our coach told us if the ball rolls off the court, just let it go because they had sprayed an herbicide everywhere around the court. And these courts are in the mountains. So there's a lot of vegetation around them. And hearing this for me was really surprising and upsetting. I'm, I'm from Hawaii and I was really became knowledgeable about these issues of pesticides and herbicides when I was in high school because Hawaii at the time and, and still is for the most part really ground zero for industrial agriculture and they do a lot of GMO testing and test the GMO corn seeds resistance to really toxic pesticides and so when I was in high school this was a huge issue because there's a lot of people living near these testing sites that were getting cancer and having babies that were born with their intestines out of their body at, at really high rates. And they were tying it back to pesticides. And, and I watched these groups stand up against Monsanto and Syngenta and all of the companies. And so when I went to college, it inspired me to want to study food systems and hearing that they were spraying pesticides around our volleyball court was, was upsetting. And so I asked the coach if I could, you know, get in contact with the athletics ground manager. And my teammate Bridget was also concerned. She comes from the Midwest and was used to being, you know, surrounded by industrial agriculture with crop dusters flying overhead. And so she was also aware of the dangers of pesticides. And so we met with the grounds manager and he was really nice. And he was saying that he sprayed Ranger Pro around our courts, which if you're not familiar, that has the active ingredient glyphosate. So it's just the more industrialized version of Roundup, essentially. And he said, you know, I don't have the staff to pick the weeds, but if you girls want to pick the weeds, great. And I won't spray here anymore. And so our team decided we'll pick the weeds. And it was a really valuable lesson because it it was very easy to get to get herbicides banned from the courts. And we thought, hey, maybe we can take this model to the rest of the campus and come at it with this similar approach of just wanting to help 
And so we, um, we reached out to the grounds manager of the entire UC Berkeley campus and asked if we could meet with him and just learn what was happening on campus. And we met with him and ended up getting a grant to transition the two largest spaces at UC Berkeley to go organic. And we hired an organic um, specialist and he trained, he did soil testing and he trained the grounds manager and, and the groundskeepers on how to manage a space without using chemicals, do overseeding and aeration and compost tea and all of these holistic management practices that build soil health. And from, from there, it really, it, it became, when I graduated, we transitioned, we, it became a national organization. And, and that was because, you know, I really had no intention of continuing with this work after college. But um, in 2018, there's the lawsuit of Lee Johnson versus Monsanto. Um, if you're not familiar, Lee was a groundskeeper for schools in the Benicia Unified School District in California. And he had a few instances where his, you know, he sprayed Roundup on the daily and he had a few instances where his backpack sprayer leaked. He got exposed and he ended up developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he sued Monsanto uh, on the basis that, that their chemical caused his cancer. And it was a huge case. And I ended up being in the Bay Area at the time. And so I got to go to the trial and got to connect with him. And I, I just realize how important this issue was and how it's, it, it was really herbicides were having a moment. Like usually people don't talk about them or they don't know about them. And all of a sudden people were talking about them because of him and, you know, whole countries started to ban Roundup because of him. And so I, I decided that we were going to expand this to other campuses. And so that's, that's where this all originated. Yeah, it's it's a very a very inspiring story of being able to take action and taking that action into um, something which is sustaining the the uh, beyond just your time, right? It's uh, that's that's um, very powerful, and I just want to dive a little deeper into the problem. Um, so you did mention some of it that, you know, it causes, um, it's, it's such, such toxic chemicals that are being used as pesticides and herbicides. And, and it's, it's of course, not just in this campus or in, in some of the states, it's really pervasive across the globe. Um, and definitely across, uh, the country that there's a lot of, uh, pesticides that are being used, which are so toxic that it can uh, cause cancer at the very least and all sorts of other complications as well uh what are the other kind of um uh impacts and issues that you're seeing with this at a um let's say the campus level itself um it, you know have you experienced some of those things or seen some of those um uh, harmful effects of it uh, in your time in various campuses that you've been working you know, it's it's really hard on the campus level to draw connections to to different instances because you know we're exposed to carcinogens on the daily. It's in the makeup. It's in um, you know a lot of times the water we drink might be toxic. It it could be in um, a lot of you know in the foods that we eat. And so I think campuses is just 
campuses that are sprayed with pesticides, which are majority of campuses around this country, um, is just one way that we're exposed to chemicals. And that's not to scare you. That's just to, you know, to, to tell you that there's many, many people need to be involved in this issue and you, and you need to tackle it in a way that feels um, right to you. Like you might not be passionate about lawn care, but you might be passionate about safe makeup or healthy food, you know? And um, I think it's, it's hard sometimes to draw those conclusions, but I mean, I meet groundskeepers who have cancer and who are spraying Roundup. Um, our, we have a, a student fellowship and um, two of our students um, in Louisiana, they were just driving by a totally different school than where they have the campaign and they saw a groundskeeper out there spraying Roundup. And so um, they pulled over and, and our student fellow was like, hey, you know, he wasn't wearing any type of protection. and she just was like, Hey, just by the way, this isn't, this isn't safe for you. Like, I don't think you should be spraying this and, and it causes cancer. And he was like, really? Like I have cancer. I had no idea that this causes cancer. And you think about Lee Johnson from the lawsuit and he's just one person. Um, but imagine how many people are in this situation as him. And maybe, and, and there is a class action lawsuit right now, but, but you know, people all don't know that that's happening. Maybe you're, um, you know, not a, you're undocumented, or maybe you don't speak English, or your boss never told you that there's this lawsuit happening and that this chemical you're using is causing cancer. So I meet a good amount of folks like that. Um, and and in a, in addition, like there's just yeah, there's a lot of crazy stories. Like John Jay University in New York, they have a they don't have much campus space, but they have a green roof like a lawn on top and um they spray that with like 24d which was the ingredient in agent orange that was used in the vietnam war and um they have a daycare attached to their school and they bring kids to sit on that little kids to sit on that lawn where they spray that um and so that's like one of the schools that we're working with trying to get them to stop doing that but you know i think the hard part about this issue is that it's usually you don't get impacts right away. Maybe farm workers do because they're exposed at really high rates and they might experience nausea or dizziness if they are out in, this, in the field when a crop duster is spraying. But usually it could take, you know, many, many years for people to get effects. And that's the hard part. That's because these chemicals are chronic. They're not acute. They don't, uh, they might not impact you right away. They, it, things like cancer, neurological defects, reproductive harm it could take many years and I think that's why this issue is not as doesn't feel as pressing or urgent as um, other issues um, it's because you can't see them and you might not get sick right away and it's it might take really small doses or um, exposures for many years and so we're just trying to prevent that from happening and um, I, I think, yeah, I think our biggest focus is for the groundskeepers because they're the ones who are applying these chemicals. They're the ones who are, you know, the most exposed. And I'm sure that there's instances where they handling these chemicals, they've had instances like Lee where something happens and they don't feel good. Um, but for the most part, I think a lot of people don't even, might not even know that what they're doing could be harmful. Like 
for Lee Johnson, his boss had told him that Roundup was safe enough to drink. And so that kind of gives you a sense of the just false narrative that is told around these chemicals and just the lack of education and awareness there, there still is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a complex problem. And it's like, as you were saying, it's so pervasive in our system um, from every side, right? And and human beings are one big part of um, the, the, the how, how of the effects of it, like health, human health. But then there's also uh, pollinators getting affected and the soil health deteriorating, wildlife dying off. Um, and, and many of these times there could be what is what is being killed as weeds could be very useful plants as well, right? Um, and university campuses in the US um, are quite vast expanses um, and most likely have their own microclimate in a sense. Uh, and the ecological footprint is enormous. So, I mean, I would think it's a, which I'm sure um, you would agree that this is such a great opportunity and that it could become a positive way of affecting the microclimate, affecting the environment, especially today when we're really, really running out of time uh, fighting uh, the ecological breakdown that is taking place all around us. Um, so, you know, and, and that's really what is inspiring to me about this, your organization, that this is the entry point that you're using and then you're dealing with this larger issue, which is so multifaceted and interdependent. Um, and I was wondering what is some of the transformation that you've seen, uh, like, so some of it is, it's not easy to measure or it takes a long time to see that effect, but things like have pollinators come back or with, with soil, I, I did read that you soil testing is part of, uh, of the man, the management of these landscapes within your program. Um, I read the report which mentioned that water consumption comes down by 20 to 35% in some yeah. cases. So, so what are some of the ripple effects that you're seeing in, in the environment itself in some of these campuses uh, as you move forward with the program? Yeah, so at, at UC Berkeley, you know, I mentioned we got that grant to transition to the largest green spaces. And then really from there, once the groundskeepers were educated, more and more spaces started to go organic. So now Berkeley is 95% organic. And I'm so glad that you read the report and um, we, maybe we can share that for listeners to check out. It's essentially a report of all of the schools um, that are organic in this country and um, just the benefits that they've seen. Not all, but but there's really not a, a lot. And so we tried to cover the ones that we had heard of and um, and just kind of what, what were the benefits from that. So at Berkeley, yeah, they measured, you know, much more biology in the soil, a lot more living organisms, um, which just, you know, we're kind of just starting to learn what that means. But um, the healthier the soil, the more carbon can be sequestered, just the more, um, you know, life and ecological benefits that are happening down there. And, and, and that's really why there's the ability to save water. We see with an organic transition, there's about a 30% um, uh, percent water savings after 
a few years of your transition. And that's because the soil is so healthy that it's able to retain the water. And, um, and, and on a campus level, you know, that can be millions of gallons. Um, I think at Harvard, they save 2 million gallons a year. Um, UT Austin, it's even more than that. And some of the other benefits, um, you know, just um, also cost. After a few years, you know, you might have to invest more time and um, educational resources into learning about how to do the transition. And um, but we're really trying to emphasize that this is not a product swap. It's not swapping conventional pesticides for organic pesticides and fertilizers. Yes, organic pesticides and fertilizers are better in the sense that they might still have acute impacts. Like it could be vinegar based and you wouldn't want to get that in your eyes, but you're not going to see those chronic effects like cancer. Um, these chemicals, the organic ones are more expensive and, and they're still, you know, it's still designed to kill a pest. And, um, and so what we are really trying to do instead of that is focus on transitioning the soil, making the soil so healthy and, and trying to understand what the imbalances are in the soil and act on that. And when you make the soil healthy, it can out the, the grass or whatever is there can outcompete the weeds. And that's the goal for when you're looking at like a lawn space. Um, and, and so you might still need to have, you know, organic chemicals and that's fine, but that's really the goal. And, um, I mentioned, you know, that's what we did at Berkeley. That's a, a lawn space. We hadn't really thought about, you know, what could it actually mean to rewild a space or do something different than just switch from conventional to organic lawn. And one of the first schools that we worked with outside of California was Grinnell College in Iowa. And here, you know, native prairie is, is really what was dominant in that area prior to colonization or, you know, before a campus was there, it would have just looked like prairie and not lawn. And it was a unique place because it's surrounded by, you know, industrial agriculture, a lot of corn. And so what the students really wanted to do was make a statement and take a piece of lawn and bring it back to prairie and see, you know, um, will pollinators come back? You know, what could this be for the environment? And so that was awesome. They ripped up the one of the main lawns and actually a horticulturist was hired to do this project. And the horticulturist said, okay, so we're going to spray Roundup all over the lawn to um, make way, you know, kill the grass and put in the native prairie. And we were all like, wait, that's, that's not the point. Like, we have to do this organically. That's the whole point. And so um, the students decided they got a ton of people out there with wheelbarrows and removed the sod and planted native prairie. And it was, it like made the the local newspaper. It was an amazing project. And um, I, I don't know if anyone's been actually measuring the pollinator count, but we know that that prairie is beneficial for pollinators. We know that it can sequester carbon. And it was just, I, I'm sure is using less water than what the lawn was using. Um, and so that was just a beautiful project. The president of Grinnell was was excited about it. It was the cover of their yearbook and is like very proudly on their website. And so that's just awesome when you can get an administrator excited about this. And it was our first example of 
of rewilding and you know you don't have to just make this a lot and we can really like decolonize the space and think about we we talk a lot about like decolonizing aesthetics what would this campus have looked like um before and just how challenging this idea of the lawn and the history of the lawn as this bourgeoisie status of wealth and how it's very inappropriate to have lawns in a lot of places like California where there's still going through a drought. And I think that's something that gets students excited about is just, you know, we can, if we can empower them to look around their campus and think about what they want to change, like that mindset that you are powerful to change, powerful enough to change your campus landscape is a mindset that will stick with you after college. And I've seen that with our graduates and they just go on to do amazing things. And always with that mindset of like, I'm, every day I'm an activist. What can I change to make my community better? So it's, it's been, yeah, very, very special getting to work with, with students. Yeah, that's really profound. The impact and the, the very complex way of, of uh, dealing with uh, a living system, right? Um, Because it's, I, I really liked the, part about decolonizing aesthetics and decolonizing what a space can be. Um, and a lot of times what we're killing off as what is really a pest or what is really uh, a weed itself is is kind of subjective. Um, and this whole idea of just um, imposing over nature and trying to subdue nature, but rather rather than allow it to kind of be part of life. Um, and then you really start gaining all the benefits of, of nature, which you're otherwise paying for, including um, the vitamins you have to consume or um, the, the fact that you have to go somewhere else to get a vacation because this is not um, part of nature, right? So, um, and especially with the prairie, I think in the US right now, there's quite a bit of impetus around this because um, there is a... Uh, there are quite a few interesting projects where they're trying to bring bison back into the prairie and uh, how that can really regulate the system. And um, it's, it's really, um, and, and what I feel, it's, it's a really interesting way of um, bringing this together. And like you're saying, working with young people, which is essentially the future of business, the future of government, the future of the planet itself. And uh so, you know, collaborative and collective action and this format that you have of having a network of nodes is something that I'm finding quite inspiring, um, that you're uh, matching the big, big picture with the grassroots and action there. So you have a fellowship program that is um, really empowering students to take meaningful action. Uh, and it seems like a great way to decentralize and uh, gather momentum so what are some of the interesting ways in which this network that you have provides feedback to the movement itself? Um, like other cases where students come up with local contextual solutions and then you see how to put that back into the larger picture? Yeah, yeah. So we have a fellowship and it's 10 months long. It, it runs for the entirety of the school year and students can apply for it and we it's fairly intensive we meet with the students every other week we give them two campus coaches from our staff and we really go through with them you know um 
we, we train them on how to bring this campaign to their campus. They, they start with a boot camp that's three days virtually, but I hope that we can actually do this in person in the future. Um, and we, in that boot camp, we teach them just the foundational um, information regarding pesticides, like the history of pesticides, the science of pesticides, environmental racism in pesticides, that we teach them about the Lee Johnson versus Monsanto Roundup trial. Um, and then we, we take some time to help them design their campaign. And then from there, you know, every other week we're meeting with them. And then once a month, we have all the fellows around the country meet together on Zoom. And we either bring in a guest speaker, or we just go through challenges. I mean, the challenges that students face are very similar. This year, we have 11 schools in 10 states, um, just in the United States for now. And um, we're working with 20 students. And uh, we try to have two students per campus, but on some of them, it's just one. And um, we, you know, like we want it to be whatever they want it to be. Like at Grinnell, we couldn't have prescribed that this was how they would do their campaign. They just came up with that idea and ran with it. So we want to welcome them to make the campaign look in take whatever form that they want it to. But the main goal is to eliminate herbicides from the campus and transition to organic land care and <clears throat> really work with the groundskeepers to make this happen. And sometimes the groundskeepers don't want to hear this. And so then you kind of have to go take it to the top. And maybe that looks like a petition or trying to get a meeting with higher up administration but at the end of the day if if the school decides to go organic you know that that's gonna fall on the groundskeepers and so I think it's very important that we include them in the conversation and figure out what what are their needs how can we help them maybe they don't the school has no money to pay for this which I don't really buy because universities have a lot of money and so it's hard to hear that sometimes because it's like well we're a nonprofit and we don't have any money so you know but if, if that's really their biggest barrier to going organic, then we will find them a grant. And at Emory University, Emory University in Georgia, that campaign started in 2020, I think. And we had a student leader there. She passed it on to two other students. And they were making some progress. Like they started an organic wall and they started to put up signs to educate people about different spaces, but they weren't getting to the meat and potatoes, which is, you know, getting their a commitment from their groundskeeper. And um, I ended up getting a grant, um, kind of, it was just sort of this random situation that um, it was specifically for Emory. And so we got a $20,000 grant, um, which would pay like a, a little bit of money to help like our staff time to help Emory, but it was really mostly for a consultant to come in and do the transition. And so when we approached Emory, now they're in their third iteration of this campaign. And we said, Hey, we have money, like we can do this transition. And then all of a sudden the grounds manager was totally on board. And so the students collected soil samples and the um, Emory got their plan. And now the transition is starting and it's, happening on four different spaces on campus, which is really exciting. And um, this is one of the first schools that we're actually doing research. Like our students are doing both 
quantitative and qualitative research on um, soil health, um, you know, looking at the cost before and after transition, and then also um, interviewing stakeholders about the transition. And so that's really great because a lot of times universities want to know, you know, how much is this going to, how much money, how much time, how much cost, you know, what are the benefits? And we've had, we put our report together, but there's frankly not that much data out there. So every school we can do more data collection, the better. So that's happening at Emory. And then um, just another highlight Drexel university in Philadelphia. This is another one where um, we helped them um, get, we got a small grant for that school and we hired um, people to come in and help. And, and that's going to take place on a couple of spaces on campus. And we always want to start with a pilot project because um, you know, the staff are nervous that, if this will work or not. And then once you can prove to them that it works, then they can take it to other areas. And it's not just hiring like a landscape company to come in and do it. It's hiring a trainer who can give them the tool so that you don't have to keep bringing somebody in to do it every year. And I think, um, you know, Atlanta and Philadelphia, both of these schools are in the city and um, both, you know, both cities, it, face a lot of environmental justice issues, um, not not related just to pesticides, but just with toxins, um, you know, in the soil in, in Georgia, in Atlanta specifically, and who it predominantly impacts. And so I think just this, this um, just success story is not just about protecting the campus community from pesticides, but it's really educating people on the fact that like, if you're a citizen, like you can do something about this and also just educating people on um, just like changing culture around chemicals and how we're exposed on the daily. And I, I hope that it can have ripple effects in communities and um, really change um, just pesticide usage in, in the greater community and around the country and, and not just around pesticides, but just um, help people build awareness around really all the chemicals that we're exposed to. So I like working with campuses because it really is a microcosm for the rest of society, I, I think. And I think if we can do this on college campuses, it can it really can have ripple effects beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Like working at a very system systems change level and looking at it through different lenses and having those values integrated into the program. And then, because, um, Chemicals, the using the amount of chemicals we use is, is sort of a symptom of the breakdown of the the, the system that we've created, um, which absolutely disregards nature. And um, that's just uh, a very, very potent way of working uh, with the administration, with authorities, with students. So it's it's bringing people together. It's um, empowering people. It is creating awareness. And it's also really paving the way for a more regenerative uh, future. Um, so that's just absolutely um, like a potent way and uh, I just have to appreciate that, that that's part of the ethos of your organization. Um, so uh, 
just uh, we're about midway through our podcast and I want to say you are tuned in to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Mackenzie Feldman, Founder and Project Director of Rewild Your Campus. Um, the last time we spoke... You shared some information about the certifications that is now a big part of um, your organization, um, the Green Ground Certification. Um, and this is something I've been exploring across the spectrum of regeneration. And uh, in fact, this was part of our discussion in, in the last podcast um, with our guest, Tina. And we spoke about the need for the need for certifications in regener regeneration. And this was, of course, in the context of the food and agriculture system. Um, but I'm curious to explore this topic from, you know, this this perspective as well. Um, how has introduction of the certification program um, sort of uh, affected the movement and affected the the adoption of uh, of this uh, program? And um, also, uh, could you like share a little bit more about? how your certifications are built like what's that ultimate uh what is the platinum level really stand at yeah thank you for asking i'm super excited about the certification um it's called the green ground certification and it's similar to like the lead building certification if you're familiar with that so it has these different levels <clears throat> um bronze silver gold platinum and <clears throat> Platinum is 100% organic, including sports fields. Um, gold is 90% organic. Um, silver is 80 and or 70. I still look back at my at my website. And bronze is 50. And the the reason for the certification was we were having. I mean, we hosted through AC, which is basically like higher ed sustainability. They, they put on events and we put on a, a event about how to transition college campuses to organic. And we had like 80 grounds managers and sustainability directors show up to that on Zoom, which was really awesome to see um, because, you know, a lot of times grounds managers, they're not on their computer. They're, you know, really literally in the weeds every day. And so for them to take an interest in this was really telling and I think, you know, we, we can only work with so many schools when we are training our students. And a lot of times those are schools that are really resistant to wanting to make change. And so, but we're, we're doing the student empowerment piece there, but there's a whole host of other schools that maybe don't need students there. They're already, they already want to do this. The problem with them is that they just don't know how to do it. And so the certification is a really great way to incentivize and push and give resources to schools that want to do this. And so I think a lot of schools are already probably at bronze, like 50% organic. And, and you apply every two years. It just came out. We haven't done any press release around it. So um, we've just done like a soft launch and we already have some applications in Um some of the first schools that we'll certify is like Seattle University and University of Washington Bothell, which shares a campus with Cascadia Community College. And those schools are going to be platinum, which is very exciting. And 
Um, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of schools that, that are already maybe bronze, but they need help getting to silver. And so what I hope through this certification is it provides community for schools that are all trying to do this and we can give them resources. It's like, Hey, maybe it's, you know, we, we show you, here's a consultants that we've worked with, or maybe you can learn to do this on your own simply by talking to a school that's already there. And so I, I really hope that this can foster that sort of dialogue between schools and especially region regionally, there's so many specific issues just on certain, you know, invasive species or, you know, which native plants to use and things like that. And so I hope that, you know, between um, within a region, schools can communicate with each other. And um, besides the level of pesticides um, or the amount of, you know, percentage of, of acres that are organic, there's some other um, facets too. Like at, at a certain level, you have to be proving that you're working with students. You have to have an integrated pest management plan. Um, you have to submit what pesticides you're using, which is a big one because a lot of times transparency is the hardest, um, is the biggest challenge. Like there's a huge lack of transparency. And some of the other things um, um, you have to, at, at the higher levels, you have to show that you're working, um, incorporating more native plants, show how you're saving water um, and all of these things. And so it's, it's exciting for us. And I think, you know, schools are, are incentivized by certifications. They already have tree campus and, and B campus, which is cool, but it's with B campus, it's maybe adding in a, a friendly pollinator habitat, but it's not taking away the problem, which is herbicides and pesticides. Um, and that's, that's no shade on B campus. I think they're awesome, but I think we just wanted to have something that was um, a little bit, um, more substantial and would actually lead to institutional change. And so that's where the certification came in. We were just thinking colleges, but when I was, I was just back home in Hawaii and I met with my high school and they were like, we want to be the first high school in the country that's get certified. Like, can we apply? And so I was like, yeah, I guess so. We were just thinking colleges, but why not? And we eventually want to move to any type of school and beyond that really just any type of campus, maybe a church, maybe a, a tech campus like Google, really any space that has um, landscape. And it's it's exciting for us to just um, be able to reward schools that are already doing a really good job and and push schools to want to be better. So um, every two years, we, it's mandatory that you apply to that higher level. So that's you know a way that we can push schools to keep getting better. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I see uh, that's a really brilliant way of, uh, of engaging with the larger audience and working with people who already have the control and the, um, and the, and the space, right? Yeah, like working with tech campuses and, and um, it's, it's, their campuses are so massive uh, and there's so much potential for it to just be um, completely fitting into sort of the bioregion, uh, fitting into the ecology, fitting into um, integrated into the ecosystem as such, right? It, that, that, and then you possibly start benefiting from the ecosystem, which is something I think today as, um, as the world is today and in our understanding of civilization, in our understanding of what development means, 
we've completely lost sight of the value of having wild uh, nature in, in our daily lives. Uh, everything from sort of mental, uh, emotional sort of uh, healing to physical benefits to uh, resource benefits, um, food systems, everything really just kind of starts tying into a positive nexus when you look at it at a systemic level. And um, uh, I definitely think that's, uh, I'm really excited that these uh, certifications are out there and excited to see uh, how it's going to grow and how it's going to uh, start bringing in more stakeholders. Um, and especially since part of it is is really engaging with students being an important component and it's not just top down where someone just decides okay today we're going to become ecological and then again excludes people um out of the people who are part of the system out of the decision and the solution um and uh you know this at this point of time there is certainly some collective agreement that human health is extremely interlinked with planetary health and the health of nature um and that when you poison nature you essentially poison um human beings yeah. and there's no way around it um and this is this is the core of your story uh and as campuses turn wilder and biodiversity starts returning um what are some of the student reactions to it like not just the ones who are already part of the program but uh the larger student body within these campuses or other campuses yeah i think i think it's almost surprising at first when students hear oh you know at berkeley we turned memorial glade to organic and like the first reaction is like wait it wasn't already organic like <laughs> i lay there all the time i think the first reaction is almost shock that this was even work that had to be done or you know you just go on a campus and you trust that it's safe and that you can lay on the grass and not get um, poisoned. And so I think um, that's why the education piece is so huge because I think it's a way to just educate people about um, how we're treating the landscape. And yeah, we had to work really hard to get chemicals out of this environment. And um, that's something really important to know that it's not just, you know, every environment out here is, is, safe which is like a terrible thing to to realize but it's true and I, so I think at first it's surprising for students to hear that the spaces they've used were not always safe um but I think it's really cool and it's it's we really push our students to like get media attention about this because and it's not just for you to be able to like boost yourself and say you know look how great I am I got this done but I think it's important to tell that story so that other students at different mm -hmm. schools could learn about it. And if you, if, if we didn't tell that story about, we got glyphosate banned from every UC campus in the country and they were not going to attribute that to students. They didn't give us any credit, even though we showed mm -hmm. up to the regents meetings, we did a petition, we got the, the regents convinced, we did everything to, to make that happen. But they just, you know, one day were like, okay, this is banned now and they were never going to give credit to students, but we told that story and, and, and made sure that it was, that it was told in a way that it was students that made this happen because it's important for students to know that you can make this change. And 
um, like you said, we're the next generation. We're going to have to deal with the climate crisis. And, um, and I think, you know, yes, this is about getting pesticides off of campuses, but it's also about just empowering students and giving them a tangible way to make change and teaching them that they can do this. And then when they leave campus, they always will have those skills. And um, it's important for the students we work with. And it's important to tell that story for students, you know, peripherally that are just on that campus or hearing about it just so that they know that, you know, students, young people have the power to make that change. And um, yes, we do a lot of weeding days where, you know, it may be in areas that they used to spray. Now we're pulling weeds and it's really groundskeepers mixed with students doing that together. And that's something for like just anyone on campus to get involved with. And that's one of my favorite parts because you hear a lot of groundskeepers just talk about how awesome it was and how a lot of times they're seen as disposable and invisible. You know, they're on campus at 5 a.m. doing the work and no one will really ever know that or nobody knows who they are. And so when they get to interface with students, then they're walking around campus and people recognize them. And it's just this really awesome bridge building work. And um, I think that it's, it's important to just like teach people, teach people that like if you use this space, then you have a responsibility to help take care of it. And it's like a really different way of, of thinking, right? Like you wouldn't go to your neighborhood park and be expected that like, you have a responsibility to steward that land, but maybe, maybe that's the way it should be. Maybe instead of that neighborhood park spraying, then like once in a while you and your friends go to that park, if you use it a lot and like you're helping to pull weeds or you're just teaching people that, Hey, weeds are fine. We can make dandelion tea with these weeds, you know? And um, I think that that's just a different way of thinking that like we are, we have the responsibility to take care of the land that we use. So. Yeah. Yeah. As you're speaking, I'm just, thinking I look forward to the day when um, students choose campuses based on the this the well-being yes. that it offers right <laughs> because it's not just about the fact that it's chemical free or the fact that it's it's also that it's full of biodiversity and all the physical and mental benefits that that brings but also participating in a uh, stewarding your campus day once every two weeks or once a month or whatever it is, is also community building. It is also physical exercise and activity. It's also humanizing the experience of um, of a, uh, a person who's working and considered um, a disposable part of the system to embrace that person and that, that very critical um service they are providing to the community uh as and, and embrace them into the community as well so it's just really um you know I, I it would be really exciting that that students are picking colleges based on apart from everything else also um on what is the campus providing for their own health and the health of the of the planet totally um, how, is it, how is it like a living laboratory and Seattle University, one of the schools we're certifying, I mean, they have an amazing grounds manager, Shannon. There's not a lot of female grounds managers and she's just super rock star and they have food forests and garden on campus. And they really do, like you're saying, integrate nature um, into this like really urban, like it's in an urban place, but they've really made it like this oasis. And 
she said that like some students choose to go there because of that, because of um, just the way that they incorporate like this living landscape into the, um, into the campus. And so I totally agree. I mean, you walk onto a space and you see tobacco free campus and maybe, you know, you would or wouldn't want to be in that space because of that, because it's tobacco free. And so what if every space said herbicide free and then, yeah, parents want to choose to send their kids somewhere because they know that it's safe and and also not just herbicide free, but like you said, really having opportunities for people to get involved um, with the garden, with the food forest, with um, what what it means to steward that land. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I remember that when I was a child that. In our school campus, we would uh, find fruits that we could eat and then like oh. eat it when you're snacky. <laughs> and uh, I just see that that's not a part of um, of urban life anywhere in the world anymore. Almost, you know, as as this this idea of development becomes more uniformized and like represented by manicured lawns and concrete. This idea of that easy connection with nature is is completely lost and this is very it's a very powerful way to shift the system um and also especially because you're working with universities and students and it certainly is a great way to bring the next generation into the conversation um inspiring them to take action enabling the transfer of knowledge enabling people to be curious and find out more and learn more about what their own environment right um, and the depth of it as well. I, I appreciate the depth that it involves um, to be in, informed and learning about ecology and how to work with the system and not just mm-hmm. like, you know, skim through, skim through it. And but like actually work with the authorities um, on creating systems change. So what's next for the movement? Is there a larger vision that you embrace of what what a wild campus uh, can be like? Yeah, I think we so we have these boot camps that we offer twice a year to our students and really to community members, but we really want to go deeper with those boot camps and do more regionally in person for students and for community members to really we want to change the culture. We want, you know, there to be this culture of like not accepting our landscape is sprayed with poison. And so to do that, I think we have to continue to educate people. So we want to we really want to do more just like build out regional hubs. So you have schools in the same area working together with community members in person and like really making um, change, not just on the campuses, but like in the region. And like, maybe that's getting involved with, with local policy and just really having those, like making those ripple effects happen that I was talking about. And so I think this year really investing in those boot camps and and the certification to make that like the gold standard um and beyond that I mean I don't know we're 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 not stopping until every campus is organic and after that then they'll have to see what what is next on the to-do list and I really hope that this can you know affect EPA policy and protect farm workers who are the most impacted the most exposed and and um i think right now the work that's happening is 
you know, maybe glyphosate is getting some awareness. And so they might, maybe they will ban glyphosate eventually. And the companies already have a substitution waiting in the wings that they will substitute. Um, and I know for like home and garden stores are going to um, have glyphosate removed from shelves in the next few years. And it's just going to be replaced by something just as toxic. And so I think a huge part of the work is in our food system is like, working with farmers to transition them to organic regenerative agriculture. And I know you talk to a lot of folks in, in that space that are doing that work. And that is a huge part of this because we can raise awareness about these chemicals and do the whack-a-mole approach and try to get them banned. But frankly, it's the system has to change. And that I, I so many, so many layers to that. It's like college campuses getting investments from big ag and therefore the people who become, you know, extension agents that come out of universities, the education that they get is around big ag. And then they're the ones that farmers are working with and they're just teaching about how to spray pesticides and things. So I think it's what the level that we can work on with that issue is really teaching students how to do freedom of information act requests, find out what, investments are going on at your university are they getting paid by Bayer you know wh where's your professors like grants coming from for research and really challenging that um because I think almost like the divestment movement like having universities divest from big ag and big chemicals um because divestment movement we've seen that work with with apartheid we're seeing that work with fossil fuel movement and getting colleges to divest from fossil fuels. And I think that that is one role that we see just in, in terms of bigger picture, you know, really like following the money. And that's something that we try to teach our students and um, hope, hopefully that can have um, larger paths. Yeah, absolutely. Like I always think the, the, the same kind of brilliance and the creativity that went into creating these campaigns that marketed for roads in individual houses and urban sprawl and chemicals in every aspect of life. The same brilliance and creativity that goes into finding new ways to be part of nature, finding new ways to support the planet and like build mutualistic relationships between us and the planet right because it's it's really scary that they're going to they're already ready with the substitute which is mm -hmm. equally toxic because they can see that it's going to get banned and then the new thing is just waiting to be replaced yeah. and then it will take another few decades to uh, even start a movement to ban it because you know it takes some time for people to start getting cancer it takes time for and by then it's it's gone across gone viral it's all across the globe and then getting it removed is um is is sometimes not even possible there are certain it it's so pervasive it's gone to every corner of the world and then how do you how do you take it back because information is not reaching as fast as these campaigns and that's primarily because of the kind of minds that are working on these projects and when you're working with uh universities that's i i love that vision that it really means that People make better informed choices of who they choose to work with and where they put their minds and their brilliance to what they put it towards, right? So uh, really love that. Um, and we're almost coming to the end of our time. So I just want to ask you, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the program or be part of it in some way? 
Yeah. Um, so we were herbicide free campus. Now we, we rebranded um, around six months ago to be called rewild your campus. Um, <clears throat> we have to, we're still working on the micro site because it's, we're under a partner organization, a parent organization called rewild. So it's a little bit hard to find us currently on their site. Um, but if you type in rewild your campus, you will find us. Um, our email is on, <clears throat> on there. Reach out if you're a student or a community member and, um, you know, we can help you give you the tools to make your campus or community go organic. Um, and our certifications also on the site, if you want to learn more about that, but yeah, just, just reach out. I'd love to, you know, be in touch. Wow. Super. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Mackenzie. Um, you're such an inspiring and inspired soul and the work that you're doing sends about such a positive, impactful message about taking care of the planet and taking care of yourself and taking care of the future. Um, and it also, I think, really gives out this message that you have the power to take care of um, a little bit of uh, whatever is in your whatever land you can right whether and and that makes a big difference um so thank you so much for being a part of this uh podcast and we're really i'm really excited for the future of uh, your organization and um waiting to see where all it uh, evolves and takes you to thank you so much nisha for having me and for the work you do and just it's on, an honor to be on this podcast so thank you so much so with that, um, we've come to an end of our podcast for this, uh, this session. Thank you for joining us uh, for Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Mackenzie Feldman, Founder and Project Director of Rewild Your Campus.